0: Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and works of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I am your host, Kristen Chavez. In this episode, I speak with Kenneth Jenkin, a professor of African, African African-American, and diaspora studies. He is also the director of undergraduate studies and the department's honors advisor. Professor Jenkin's research focuses on 20th century African-American history, and he teaches courses on the civil rights movement, the Harlem Renaissance. African American intellectual history, and African American autobiography. His 2016 book, The Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice, and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s, received the Clarendon Award from the Lower Cape Fear Historical Society. Jenkin received the George H. Johnson Prize for Distinguished Achievement by an IAH Fellow. On March 23rd, he received the award and delivered a lecture, Bringing the Wilmington 10 to the Public's Attention, One Historian's Experience in Public Humanities. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Before we get more specific about your work and your research on the Wilmington Ten, I wanted to know how you got interested in history and African American history in particular.
1: Well, uh, I became interested in history uh, in in high school, I guess, and I had a, a wonderful teacher, uh, Miss Basiri, who. Uh, opened that up for me, and uh, uh, I enjoyed it. And when I went to uh, college, I thought I would study it. That's the the short and boring story about how I got involved in history. Um, How I got involved in African-American history, uh, when I was growing up, the the Civil Rights Movement was uh, among the uh, most covered stories of uh, the day, as was... uh, the, uh, uh, the War in Vietnam and the anti-Vietnam uh, War movement. So there was a personal interest in it. And um, when I got to graduate school uh, and sampled some courses, I was uh, fortunate to uh, take a course with uh, David Levering Lewis, who, was, uh, who is a, a distinguished uh, uh, historian of uh, African America, among other uh, uh, aspects of history. And um, uh, I asked him if he would be my uh, advisor. He agreed. And I thought that African-American history was was an area that I could make a contribution in. And that's the short answer.
0: And so your book, The Wilmington 10, Violence, Injustice, and the Rise of Black Politics in the 1970s, was published, as I mentioned, in um, 2016. Can you give a brief overview of the Wilmington 10, what happened, and then its lasting impacts? Sure.
1: What's known as the Wilmington Ten was uh, a series of events in February of 1971 uh, in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. African American students at the two high schools in the city uh, had reached uh, kind of a, a full point where they were uh, they could not take any more the uh, second-class treatment that they had uh, been receiving at the schools. And uh, they formulated a series of demands uh, related to uh, their daily life at school and related to the world around them. So they, they demanded things like a relevant curriculum, a series of uh, uh, black studies lectures, observation of uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, birthday uh, holiday, an end to discrimination of uh, athletes and cheerleaders on the cheer squad and on the uh, varsity sports. Uh, And then, uh, crucially, they demanded uh, also an end to the uh, disparate treatment that they received in school. So, for example, if fights broke out in the hallways, white students were often let off and black students were often suspended. And in addition to that, uh, police were called to campus. Mm -hmm. uh, And the police the, the police would arrest African Americans, they would rough them up, things like that. And they presented these demands uh, to the school board, which uh, rejected them out of hand. And so mm-hmm. the students uh, uh, called for a boycott uh, of uh, the schools. Uh, that caught the attention of a local uh, white supremacist organization uh, whose name was the Rights of White People. And they were kind of a break off of uh, of the Klan in eastern North Carolina and felt that, uh, that the Klan was, uh, uh, was not violent enough, as it were. And the rights of white people uh, began to drive by these students' boycott headquarters and shoot at the students. Uh, and this uh, sparked a week of violence in uh, Wilmington, in which there was a shooting in front of the church, there was a arson, and uh, other forms of uh, violence. And it culminated uh, with uh, the burning of a grocery store, a mom and pop store, about mm-hmm. two blocks from uh, the boycott headquarters. And those are the events. Once the, uh, the grocery store had burned, uh, the mayor called in the Highway Patrol and had the governor call in the National Guard, who raided the uh, boycott headquarters, which was a church. Mm-hmm. And uh, they put down the the boycott, and they put down this uprising. And then a year later, in uh, March of 1972, 16 people were arrested for uh, the incidents around this uh, uh, this uprising, and in particular around uh, the burning of uh, Mike's Grocery, which was the name of the grocery store. Ten of those were eventually put on trial. And that's, the, that's where the mm. Wilmington 10 comes from. They were, they were tried in a corrupt trial, and they were convicted of uh, arson, conspiracy to commit arson, and conspiracy to shoot at uh, police and firefighters who responded to the uh, arson. And they were sentenced to a total of uh, 282 years wow. in prison, uh, based largely on testimony that had been made up. By the uh, district attorney,
0: and were those convictions eventually overturned?
1: Yes, they were eventually overturned almost immediately uh, upon their conviction in uh, 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 September of uh, of 1972. A movement started uh, to uh, free the Wilmington Ten, and uh, it had a dimension in uh, in the legal field. So there were all sorts of appeals to file. Mm-hmm. Uh, But then there was a a strong sense that uh, even the best legal strategy couldn't um, uh, get the Wilmington 10 freed. Several organizations joined together in different combinations to create a movement to free the Wilmington 10. Uh, And that was uh, in North Carolina, in uh, the U.S. South, in the United States as a whole, and internationally as well.
0: Is this commonly known, do you think, in North Carolina or even nationally? Or
1: Well, it's more known in North Carolina mm-hmm. now, but I think it is largely still uh, not known. And so in North Carolina, for example, you know, if I talk about the Wilmington 10, people will think I'm talking about the uh, 1898 uh, Wilmington riot and coup, uh, and so there's that confusion. Uh, there are people who, you know, who are in their their 60s and older, who would remember it more clearly. Younger people, not so much. Uh, it's it's less clear. But in Wilmington, it's being taught in the public schools in in one way or another, as is the Wilmington uh, Riot of 1898 and. The, the 1898 massacre has m- worked its way into the uh, state, you know, public schools uh, curriculum. So people do know about it. And, and, I, and I'm often invited to places to talk about it, which would indicate to me that there is an interest and a knowledge of it, at least among the organizers of those programs at museums and uh, schools and libraries.
0: Great. Good. So what was the research and the writing process for the book like?
1: Well, it took longer than I thought. <laughs> uh I had to learn a new language, uh, legalese, you know, mm. uh, because so much of the the case of the Wilmington 10 was uh was tied up in court. Uh you know, reading uh, uh trial transcripts and uh, uh pleadings and opinions and you know all this stuff. It 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 took an effort to uh, to learn all the legal terms and figure out how it was going. So that was part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of work in, uh, in legal documents. Then another store of documents were the FBI files on the Wilmington 10 case. Mm-hmm. Um, that included uh, informant reports on the local organizations in Wilmington and on the major organizations uh, involved in that type of struggle in Eastern North Carolina, in particular the uh, Commission for Racial Justice of the United Church of Christ. Um, The FBI uh, had uh, informants and spied on all these organizations. Mm -hmm. It was hard to get at them. I eventually did, uh, but it took, I don't know, three years of uh, waiting for uh, them to be made available. At the National Archives. So there was Mm. that. There were also uh, lots of people to talk to. Uh, I think I talked to more than three dozen uh, people who were uh, either involved in the events or were close observers of them. And that would have, you know, that included some members of the Wilmington 10 who uh, would talk to me. It included uh, educators who were in Wilmington during, you know, in the schools. It included uh, attorneys for the 10, uh, attorneys for the prosecution, personal friends of the Wilmington 10, uh, relatives of the Wilmington 10, you know, a lot of things like that. So it was a lot of work. It it took longer than I had anticipated.
0: But fulfilling, I feel like, in the same Uh, way. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hard work, but worth it in the end. <laughs>
1: well, yeah, but that's the way, that's one of the reasons why I do this, because okay. it's it's rewarding. It's, it's, you know, it's fun. It's not a chore.
0: I like that. Can you share about um, that work in bringing the Wilmington 10 to the public's attention? Sure.
1: Most of the way that I did it was by lectures and panel discussions. And typically, I would be invited to uh, a library, or on a radio show, or uh, a community center, and I would talk about the Wilmington Ten. Uh, and I've done that, I think, over the course of you know the last six years, seven years. I've spoken at, at probably four dozen places, mostly in North Carolina, but but also uh, at a, in other parts of the country, and. The people who come to these events have expressed to me is that uh, they didn't know uh, Mm -hmm. about the Wilmington 10 or they had no clear idea. So that was one thing. So, you know, one of the things about about bringing something to the public is making them aware of it. Um, They are largely dismayed about uh, what happened. Well, I'll just talk about some of the Mm -hmm. most egregious things uh, here. They were The Wilmington 10 were arrested beginning in March of 1972. It took several, well, it took until May for the uh, prosecutor to uh, decide w- who he was going to uh, prosecute. Um, he made these arrests uh, based on one person's uh, story. And this person, his name was Alan Hall, he was facing... Uh, time in prison, you know for some other uh for some other unrelated uh uh crime and Alan Hall uh was on the periphery of this protest movement in wilmington uh you know really on the periphery. He was not a regular participant and he was certainly wasn't a leader of the movement uh or of any of the activities he he was on the edges and when he was arrested uh in trying to think it was probably May of 1971. He was So he was arrested soon after on these unrelated charges. He went and he, he hit a teacher over the head with a bottle, something like that. He called on one of the leaders of the Wilmington 10, uh, Ben Chavis, uh, who was you know in his 20s at the time. He wasn't a high school student. Uh, and he was a minister in the United Church of Christ. And so he had access to different networks and probably different funding sources mm-hmm. uh and he asked Ben Chavis to get him out of prison to get him out of jail mm-hmm. and uh Chavis and others who were around him said we don't have the money we can barely keep ourselves out of jail we can't really you know help you here and that's when Alan Hull turned against them and mm-hmm. so he told the uh district attorney a story you know, he made up a story about who burned Mike's and how it was done and things like this. And he was, uh, he was uh, kind of an erratic person, Alan Hall was. So the case was built uh, on something that was, was made up. And then to bolster that, the district attorney and an agent of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms which is a federal agency, concocted the full story and coached Alan Hall on what to say. Mm -hmm. And um, in uh, exchange for that testimony, Alan Hall was given a reduced sentence, not too surprising. Mm -hmm. But he was also given all sorts of other uh, 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 special treatments, like they brought his girlfriend uh, from Asheville all the way across the state to, uh, uh, to eastern North Carolina for conjugal visits. Um, he was allowed out of jail to visit his mother at home. As he prepared his testimony uh, with the district attorney and the, uh, and the uh, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agent, uh, he was put up in a beach house. On, uh, I think it was Carolina Beach, um, oh, put up in a beach house where they were able to, uh, where he and his minders were able to drink alcohol and go fishing and things like this. Um, uh, none of these uh, emoluments were ever made known to the jury. The judge mm-hmm. refused to let the defense talk about these things in the trial. Uh, More than that, there was a controversy over this guy's statement, Alan Hall's statement. He was caught in cross-examination saying things that weren't in his statement and saying things that contradicted what he said in his statement. Mm. And when he was pressed on those inconsistencies, he said, well, I made the statement, and then I uh, made corrections to it verbally, and they were written down on my statement by the district attorney. Well, the defense attorneys said, well, we want to see that statement. You know, we want to see your statement with all the handwriting Mm -hmm. on it. And the judge wouldn't let that uh, go Mm -hmm. out. So that plus a variety of other things, uh, when people hear about this in my talks, uh, they are, well, some are surprised. um, Some are angered. And others are dismayed uh, that that this could happen and uh, that they didn't know about it. So bringing you know bringing the Wilmington Ten to the public also involves that, and audiences have an opportunity to ask me questions uh, afterward, and we engage in some type of discussion, you know, all, you know discussions about. Uh, you know uh, judicial misconduct and uh, prosecutorial misconduct mm-hmm. uh why the um uh why the government was so intent on convicting these people you know things like mm-hmm. that so uh, that's been you know my experience is that uh, the the talk includes uh there's a there's a revelatory aspect for the audience but then there is a period where people want to ask questions of, and want more detail about uh about what they were uh, accused of and, and want more detail about uh, the corruption in, in Wilmington and in the, the court system, so.
0: Thank you for sharing all of that. The Johnson Prize, of which you are the 2022 recipient, recognizes outstanding achievement by an I H fellow. And you are a faculty fellow in 1994 and in 2001. How did you use those fellowship periods?
1: Well, in uh, 1994, I worked on an article, uh, that uh, that was eventually published about the Harlem Renaissance and uh, African American uh, writers and some musicians, their interactions with their French counterparts. So it was about mm-hmm. it was about the the Harlem Renaissance in Paris, uh, basically, uh, and that grew out of uh, a, a larger project that I ended up not pursuing. Um, which was a, a biography of a man named Mercer Cook, who was the son of uh, one of the pioneers of jazz, uh, Will Marion Cook, and Will Marion Cook's wife, uh, Abby Mitchell, who was a prominent singer and uh, in, in vaudeville as well. And Mercer Cook had a, a distinguished career as a diplomat and a college professor. And so I learned a lesson in all of this is that you should only pursue projects that you could, that can maintain your interest over Mm -hmm. a long period of time. And I realized that uh, Mercer Cook uh, wouldn't do that for me. Uh, He did it for other people who have done a good job on him, but it wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. And so I narrowed the project down and took this small piece of it that was related to Mercer Cook of... uh, of uh, African-American and uh, uh, Francophone intellectuals uh, uh, during the Harlem Renaissance era. <laughs> that was an important uh, research lesson, uh, it, you know, that it's important to, ru- to, to rule something out, not just rule everything in. Uh, and, and I say that resulted in an article. And then in 2001 um, I used that fellowship uh, w- I was writing a biography of the Head of the NAACP uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and until he died in the 19 not died in 1955, uh, Walter White, and that was published uh, in 2003. White, the biography of Walter White, Mr. NAACP, and that's how I that's how I used it, and then. You know, at the w- a weekly a weekly lunches, which used to be over in uh, West House, which mm-hmm. is no longer there, um, you know, I got to know uh, a number of the fellows and had formed, uh, you know, I think pretty good professional friendships uh, with them, including uh, Lloyd Kramer and uh, a Terry Rhodes and uh, a Jerma Jackson. Uh, my colleague from graduate school, who we, 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 we met again, and, uh, and she's in the history department here. Uh, and that's what I did. And so the, the, the IAH was just a wonderful place to, uh, uh, to work and, you know, for the fellows to share what they were doing uh, and trying to find connections. And if you couldn't find connections, um, you would at least learn something and uh it was a it was a wonderful time
0: that's great um i love that you mentioned west house too i forgot i mean we just marked our 20th anniversary here in hyde hall um i didn't make the connection then i was like oh right before 2002 when the building opened you would have been um meeting in west house
1: yeah and i liked west house a lot uh it was crowded it was hard (laughs) to get around i think in in my 1994 semester there Uh, I broke my leg and so I couldn't I didn't break it there okay (laughs) you know I didn't break it there (laughs) Still not not great (laughs) but I remember it was hard to get around Mm -hmm. uh, the table to go find a seat Um, but it was nice it was historic uh, and I can't say I'm sorry it's gone uh this is, a much, this is a much nicer building.
0: <laughs> you did get to enjoy Hyde Hall in your next fellowship in 2014. You were a, an academic leadership program fellow. That's right. Um, so, how is that different from the other fellowships, maybe not just the building?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the subjects under discussion were a lot different. I mean, at, uh, you know, in West House, the discussions were what, what's your research? What are you doing? How are you presenting it? everybody everybody, every semester had to present something about their work uh to the fellows around the table uh and I actually found that kind of intimidating but uh, uh but that was that the academic leadership program was for faculty members who wanted to learn more about about university leadership perhaps uh perhaps people were thinking about uh Uh, taking up a different post um, uh, or taking up some more responsibility uh, for the college uh, and I guess being you know uh, part-time administrators Uh, and I had thought about that and so I uh, I went to that Uh, and then at the same time that I was doing that uh, I became the director at the Center for the Study of the American South. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about myself as a, uh, uh, you know, and my temperament uh, as, uh, you know, in those administrative roles. I don't know. It was a fun bunch, but it, but it was, uh, it was fun in a different way, and it, mm-hmm. it gave me an opportunity to to flex those administrative skills that I. Uh, I hadn't had a chance to do previously, and it gave me a better idea of the types of administrative work I'm comfortable in doing in the kinds that uh, I'm not. And uh, and that was valuable uh, to me as well.
0: Yeah. Im- important to learn, I think, like you said, not just about yourself, but the types of work you are comfortable with or less comfortable with. Yeah. Right. Great. Is there anything else that you, you want to add or mention before we start to wrap up?
1: I'm grateful for uh, for the IAH. Um, it's one of the one of the places on campus uh, that you can count on for a uh, uh, for a sympathetic ear. Uh, you don't always get what you want, but you know you can always uh, come here, pitch an idea, um, you know, ask for assistance in in other ways, and. Uh, the people who work here are are really responsive and interested in the in the humanities and interested in what people are in, in what people are doing and want to help them. So uh, I like the Ieh a lot,
0: and we love working with faculty. And I love learning um, learning from faculty with these um, mm-hmm. podcasts too. It's a great way, I think, uh-huh. not just to run in my own horizons and serve the institute, but really oh, yeah. you know learning for myself as oh, well. sure. Um, so thank you. This is fantastic. This has been fantastic. As we wrap up, I do want to ask um, one last question that we ask sure. all of our guests: What is a book that has changed your life?
1: A book that has changed my life.
0: I could also even broaden this if you want to think beyond a book or any creative piece or. Uh, no, I'm thinking piece. about a book. Great what book. You know, it, it's a big question.
1: <laughs> it 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 really is a big question and. You know, I hate to uh, uh, channel Barbara Bush, right, who said that her favorite book was the book she was reading. <laughs> uh, well, let me give two books. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm sorry. When I'm writing a book, I try and make sure that I read something, uh, you know, meaty. And so one book that, that I read when I was uh, writing my first book, I read uh, War and Peace, mm. Tolstoy's War and Peace. And the things I learned from that about war <laughs> uh, and uh, the chaos of it uh, and then also the, uh, the attitude of uh, one of the generals in the war, uh, in the uh, a general, um, well, I'm going to baudelarize the name, General uh, Kutuzov or Kutuzov. Um, who, when Napoleon was invading Russia, uh, just wouldn't do anything. He was sitting around, and he said, no, the time's not right, the time's not right, and everybody's losing their head around him. They're running around saying, we have to act, we have to uh, uh, mount a counteroffensive, we have to do this, we have to do that, and he was very calm and just said, the time is not right, you know, and then when he determined that the time was right, he stopped napoleon you know from his invasion so i've always kind of kept that in mind about that he, as a well as it relates to the academic leadership program mm-hmm. you can always choose to do nothing i mean you can always choose just to wait and see you don't have to act immediately you know there's something there's a value of watchful waiting sizing up Uh, And then I read, um, when I was working on the Wilmington 10, I read a book um, titled uh, A Moment in the Sun by John Sayles. It takes place in 1898. It's a novel that is in part about the Wilmington massacre and coup in 1898, but also uh, the Spanish-American War in the Mm -hmm. Philippines, and also the Spanish-American War in Cuba, and also uh, uh, the discovery of gold in uh, the Yukon, and the uh, kind of the last push to uh, uh, the last push of Indian removal in the mm-hmm. end of the uh, end of the 19th and 20th century. And it was just a very broad uh, history, uh, you know, fictionalized history of the United States and the United States place in the world, and you know, it was like. 900 pages. I loved it.
0: Yeah. Both both of those sound quite meaty, as you said. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for sharing um, those books. Thank you for sharing everything about your research. This has been um, a fantastic talk. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to The Institute Podcast. Listen to other and upcoming episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our website, iah.unc.edu, to find past episodes and transcripts. You can also learn more about our upcoming events, programs, grants, and leadership opportunities for UNC Chapel Hill faculty, and read stories that feature our Arts and Humanities Fellows. Thank you for joining us.